This podcast proudly brought to you by Moss Shot Shells. Old school is back in season. Experience superior shells when you go with Boss Shot Shells. Their premium, non-toxic bismuth shells knock birds down so hard that the old guys might just think they're shooting lead again. Make sure you check out Boss Shot Shells for your next purchase of shotgun shells. Hey guys, I'm Jordan Fromer. I believe in hunting hard, hunting smart, and having a fun time while doing it. And shooting limits? Well, that's just the icing on the cake. I revel in the journey just as much as the successes it brings. From ducks to dogs to decoys and guns, we'll be talking tactics, strategies, and what it takes to get the job done. Load up and take aim. This is the Duck Gun Podcast. What's going on, folks? I'm Jordan from Duck Gun Chronicles. Got my co-host, Elliot, alongside me for tonight. How you doing tonight, Elliot? I'm doing a lot better right now because I just noticed that uh, Ducks Unlimited released their very first episode from last year, like a day ago, and I hadn't seen it. So as soon as we get down here, I'm going to watch that Ducks Unlimited. Do you, do you watch their uh, Waterfowl episodes? Yeah. yeah, I do. Those are really, I've spent more time in my life watching Ducks Unlimited TV than any any other channel. They started putting their stuff on YouTube, I think, in 2007. And before the YouTube stuff blew up, um, I would, cause I was just sick of all the, the YouTube crap was just, you know, Metallica to kill shots. And the <laughs> only thing on there that was, that I really enjoyed watching was ducks unlimited TV. So preseason, um, before all this stuff blew up, I would always, I was always going, I've got my favorite ducks unlimited TV episodes and I would go back and watch the same ones clear back from 2007 <laughs> on every year. So I'm, I'm excited. I'm like, there, there's one particular one where they do a, a, and that's actually how I got the name freelance duck hunting because Wade Bourne every once in a while, he would go on a freelance duck hunt. And my favorite was where they hunted this lake, uh, Lake Agua something in Oklahoma. And he, he probably said freelance duck hunting so many times in that episode, that episode is probably why I named my channel <laughs> freelance duck hunting. Awesome. So it's so much more fun to watch public land hunts than guided hunts to me. Maybe uh, you should get him on as a guest at some point. <laughs> He's dead. Oh, <laughs> I guess, guess that's not going to happen. No, that, that ship no. sailed. He was my favorite waterfowl industry personality by far, Wade Bourne. And uh, he died somewhat prematurely. I think he was in his 60s. I think he had a heart attack. But um, mm. in fact, I kind of stopped watching. I didn't watch the episodes last year. I kind of stopped watching after Wade Bourne. Um, they kind of went with a more trendy kind of... Uh, um, Ashley Beeman came on and and they came up with a whole different crew and I didn't quite connect with them but yeah I think they yeah this they've always they've switched the crew almost every year I feel like yeah and with it I think they're kind of going more like trendy kind of um almost pushing the millennials a little bit I think in a way that's kind of their marketing it feels like maybe mm. are you you're a millennial aren't you yeah yeah you are <laughs> not I not I, but I, I'm going to watch it. I'm certainly going to watch it. When we get back into them, watch it. They're good stuff. Awesome. What you, uh, what you been up to this week? Well, um, man, not really much of anything. I've been working on my Facebook ad campaigns for freelance hunt stats. That's pretty much kind of what I've been doing. So, and just planning videos and, and really right now I'm in like, I'm feeling a little bit crunched because I wanted to get all this stuff done during the summer and all these videos done and I'm behind schedule now. So I'm like, 
I'm doing this freelance discussion interviews thing. So I'm trying to schedule guests and, and just, I'm feeling a little bit cramped on that. Yeah. Well, it's uh it'll be a duck season before you know it and you'll be a lot more cramped. <laughs> yeah, I know. And I cleaned out my garage. Did you see that video where I cleaned my garage out? Yeah. Yeah. Looks good. That video did pretty well. That, that, that dumb video did better than all my other videos this <laughs> summer. <laughs> nice. Well, I, I mean, we are getting closer to season, so. Yeah. Yeah. Things are picking up for sure. I think. Yeah. So what, what about you working with chief still? Yeah, uh, I've kind of tapered it down a little bit. We're not doing, you know, two or three days every day. Um, doing a lot more one a days. It's getting really hot. It's like 90 degrees. So a lot of times yeah. it's not even worth it doing at lunch. And if I can't get out there late enough in the evening, it's still too hot. So we've been kind of trimming it down to one um, and just had some bigger, busier weeks. So I haven't hit it up as much, but we're still trucking along, still grinding. Um, he's doing great. Uh, probably I was about ready to move him on to the next video today and I thought ah, I'll just I'll just run it through him one more time and yeah I mean we had maybe the tiniest issues of confusion a couple times uh, but that was like he didn't go I, I'd tell him to go back and he was just like looking at me like you know making sure and so you know say it the second time and he bolts backwards so um, yeah. you know we're doing doing really good on that stuff um, now, are you mean you're stopping him on the whistle and telling him? Yeah, to go back yeah, like whistle sits and back. We're doing nice. like left and right backs right now, uh, just making sure he goes the right way. Yeah, I've never did any of that that stuff with Izzy, but I'm I'm definitely gonna do all that stuff with Georgie for sure. Which I get her. We're picking her up Monday morning, so that's exciting. Awesome. Yeah. Oh yeah. So are what's a, are you going to do? Um, are you gonna steady? chief this off season seems like you're getting pretty late in the season you know, i don't think you've started that um yeah i've already started studying him i haven't done it with gunfire I just haven't had yeah. a chance to get somebody else out there and i haven't i haven't gotten pigeon hunting in probably like a month so um i probably need to get somebody to come with me and do that uh but you know as far as like we're doing steady on the throws and all that stuff so as long as oh, okay. i can incorporate gotcha. it into the gunfire that's when uh you know the little extra excitement of the bang right next to him might uh, you know, send him off of spot. So, so he's steady. It's everything you're doing in training. He's steady, and steady. yeah, he's steady with the retrievers right now. Yeah. Okay. And speaking of training, I was actually listening to. Um, I'm doing all. I'm totally into dog content right now with Georgie coming. So I signed up to the Freddie King, the RetrieverTrainer.com, which we're gonna have him on in August, which is gonna be awesome to have Freddie King on. Yeah. And I listened to Mid Valley Mercenaries. He did one today. Um mistakes rookie or he didn't do it today it was one of his older ones like the episode number 11 for him mistakes that rookie trainers make and man it was really that's actually the first podcast of titus's that i've listened all the way through i was i was pretty impressed with that he did a good yeah. job with it yeah he does a good job and that kind of brings us to something we want to mention we've uh definitely uh, well we've decided we're going to be partnering more um in that area as well. So he's kind of what we're going to call like a brother podcast to ours. Um, he's putting out great content as well. Uh, and at this point he's doing it weekly, kind of the same as us. And he's a YouTuber just like us. So, um, we really think, you know, if you guys are wanting some extra waterfowl content, you know, make sure to head over there. His is called the MVM show. Um, and he's doing a great job with it. And another one of his, I listened to is he had a waterfowl historian on a guy that just spends his off time looking for, 
um, relics from early 1900 duck hunting old calls and and stuff like that. And that and that was that was really interesting as well. He's got a good thing going on over there. Yeah, for sure. Not to mention on YouTube, uh, really uh, enjoy his videos as well. Yeah, I've been. You know, I just watched for the first time of his the video where he tipped the kayak over and uh, had to walk out. I just I had not watched that before. <laughs> Pretty funny one, yeah. He is so lucky he didn't lose his gun. That was quite the catch. The funny thing about that video was is I think from listening to the noises he was making, he was feeling panicked in the water. Uh, if you listen to the just, he's not saying anything, but he's like, like ah, ah, you know, and uh, as he's in the water, I feel like he was panicking. And then a later on the video is like, yeah, that's why I didn't panic. And I'm thinking, uh, I don't know about that. <laughs> I think you were panicking <laughs> at least very scared. I'll say that he seemed extremely scared, which I would be too, you know, over his head and his waders. And I would be scared too, but well, that's yeah. funny. Uh, yeah. There's a, I know I saw, I can't remember if you made a post about it or a comment, but there's somebody who commented and uh was going all out saying like that he faked the whole thing <laughs> are you serious <laughs> oh my gosh yeah he is so lucky he didn't lose his gun if he had faked that he wouldn't have done the gun thing the gun would have been <laughs> strapped to his back or something yeah you're right you know, yeah <laughs> there no, was you, no faking that you that don't want to lose like a fifteen hundred dollar plus gun in the river yeah. <laughs> you're not gonna just I, let it float and hopefully you can catch it <laughs> And I mean, he got so lucky because he got right on video, his hand just snagging that gun. That had to be a blind grab. There's no way he was looking under the water when he did that. It was just fall in, grab my gun, and boom, he nailed it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that was good stuff. Good stuff. Good stuff for sure. So I actually had a kind of, well, I wouldn't say it's a similar situation. I had a little bit of a scary situation um, yesterday. So I was out fishing and, uh, I had to go through this, um, oh, a bay and back into these back channels and creeks for some bass fishing from, uh, the old town canoe. Well, anyways, I get out there and then all of a sudden I hear thunder behind me and I turn around and we just got like storm clouds just blowing in fast. So, um, <laughs> and Hunter was out with me. And so then, um, we're like, ah, should we get out now or should we give it a little bit? The fish are really biting good. <laughs> so we gave it a few more casts, probably like just a few minutes. And then we went for it. And, but like, I, I wasn't even back out to the main bay. And so you have to cross like big open water to get back. And I'm going up like the last part of the Creek out to the open bay. And all of a sudden the wind gets there and it's just like gusting wind and uh i mean i was I, honestly i was a little scared because it was like uh like white caps like hitting the boat and uh like splashing over it and not over it but like into it i'm not i don't want to make it seem like i'm on the ocean or anything but you go from like you know a glass kind of pond yeah. to that it was i mean yeah and so then going in like the the waves were pulling me out so much that i literally just paddled on one side of my canoe instead of you know how you have to go every other yeah yeah. (laughs) and they're coming like the way the wind's blowing it's coming at my side and so i'm like rocking like this paddling on one side so the waves don't pull me away (laughs) oh man into a thunderstorm so it was it was pretty uh i was nervous i'd never uh had been out in water like that let's just put it that way oh yeah i got i've got a story it's too long of a story to tell now but uh, when we got up into canada minnesota boundary waters and they they dropped us off on this huge lake and 
we had to actually bind our um, canoes together. It, it was it, we had to cross this lake and it was snowing basically in the spring. And it was pretty darn scary because there was no help anywhere inside. But well, I'll go through that some other time. But yeah, it can be scary when you get those big, big waves in a canoe or kayak or whatever. Yeah, for sure. Well, do you want me to send him the invite now? Yeah, let's go ahead. Uh, and our guest for tonight, go go ahead and send it, and um, okay. I'll go ahead and give the little introduction. So our guest tonight is John Devney. So. We have had him on here before, but a uh, great guest from Delta Waterfowl. And we'll give you the whole lowdown once we get him in here. And let's see. what Do you remember? Oh, he's senior vice president of Delta Waterfowl. He's up <laughs> in Nebraska. Um, so, I mean, he's in prime duck breeding heaven up there. So we're hoping that he can really give us some information on um, what the habitat has been like, what the hatch is looking like, how, you know, what we can expect for this year. And, and we've got some other topics that, um, I'm hoping he's got some insight on the pintail population for Jordan. Cause Jordan's coming to Kansas a couple of times. <laughs> I did not shoot a pintail last year. And that was the first time for a few years. I haven't shot one and Jordan's coming to Kansas. So hopefully we'll get a good word on the pintail population. Awesome. But first, a quick word from our partners, and we'll be right back to the podcast. Gunner's American-made dog boxes come with a lifetime warranty and the market's only CPS crash test certification. The guys over at Gunner Kennels have conducted major stress tests to show just how strong they really are, like applying 4,000 pounds of force, dropping a 630-pound hammer from 8 feet and shooting it with a 12-gauge shotgun at seven paces with no bullet penetration. Engineered for your dog and built for your peace of mind, Gunner doesn't cut any corners. Nothing comes close to the G1. Go to GunnerKennels.com and use code DuckGun10 at checkout for 10% off your next purchase. We'd also like to give a big thanks to our partners over at ShotCam. Now, I've been using ShotCam for the last year, and I can tell you right now, it's a great tool for improving your shooting, whether you're doing clays or live birds, or just want to see some cool footage of your shots after the fact. Make sure to check out ShotCam.com and use discount code DuckGun at checkout for $40 off. Alrighty, folks. We are back, and we've got John Devney with us. And just to do a little introduction for John Devney, um, he is the Senior Vice President of Delta Waterfowl, and uh, he's actually been on the podcast before. Um, super informative guest uh, with uh, with a lot of knowledge, so we're super pleased to have you back on. How are you doing tonight, John? Doing great, guys. Awesome, awesome. So uh, just for, for the people who haven't listened to the last podcast, can you go ahead and uh, just give a little bit of background of what being the senior vice president of Delta Waterfowl means? Yeah, well, I mean it's uh, it's pretty interesting, guys. It, it, I think as we talked about the last time we got together, it's it it means a lot depending on any given day. Um, you know, I I have a variety of responsibilities. The, Core of my responsibilities is to represent Delta, both on conservation and hunting issues across the United States. So that includes everything from federal issues, the U.S. Congress, uh, to the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and the Department of Interior, 
and then everything down from state and local as well. So, you know, as you can imagine, the issues ducks and duck hunters face, it's it's incredibly diverse job. Um, you know, the, the best part of my job is I get to work with a lot of great people, a lot of great volunteers and members and duck hunters across the country, um, which is a real privilege and a real honor. So it just really depends. Someday I'm working on congressional issues. The next day I may be working with the media. The next day I may be doing major gift fundraising. And the next day I may be presenting in front of our volunteers. So uh, I think the most descriptive part of my job title is other duties as assigned. Awesome. And do you have uh, anything specific right now pressing going on? Uh, you know, there's a couple big things that are focuses for us right now. Obviously, the you know, last year we got the 2018 Farm Bill done, signed by the president in December. Um, and while that's an incredibly Herculean task, and, and the Farm Bill was great for docs, you spend an incredible amount of time on implementation. So working with NRCS and uh, Farm Service Agency, to make sure those great programs we got for ducks and duck hunters, including the 2018 Farm Bill, get implemented properly. Uh, another big one is uh, the Fish and Wildlife Service has made a real earnest effort to increase hunting access on U.S. Fish and Wildlife refuges around the country. Um, here at the end of May, uh, they, you know, announced 1.4 million acres of new access on refuges and that's something we've been working on the last several years and we want to continue to press for more you know really beneficial duck hunting opportunities as part of that so those are a couple things that i'm spending a lot of time on here as of as of recent so if 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 our listeners want to get involved and donate money to delta what is the easiest way for them to be able to do that well, you know, I mean, I think it's it's sure changed in the 20 years I've been at Delta. Um, you know, it used to all be envelopes and phone calls, and, and it's pretty amazing to me. I, I guess it's because I'm a bit of a dinosaur, and, um, you know, I'm amazed how much of the transactions have moved to the website. Um, you know, web and engaging with us on Facebook and through the website is probably the very easiest way. But, you know, we still get a lot of calls from duck hunters trying to understand uh, the work that Delta does and the value it represents. And we still got a lot of guys to call in and ask general questions and make their donations that way. It, the other thing that's different from when I started 20 years ago is that, you know, we've got a pretty big chapter and event system around the country. And and I think now about 60% of our members actually attend events on an annual basis. So that's where more and more hunters are getting familiar with Delta. They enjoy going to those events. They enjoy being engaged with our chapters and the work they're doing in those communities. So that's, that's a much more important part of the organization than what it was when I first started. Awesome. So do we want to do we want to go ahead and jump into some of the more specific topics we got planned for tonight, Elliot? Well, before before we do that, I do have one. We was talking about the farm bill, and I'm I'm curious, without going too in depth, what are maybe a couple of the best benefits of the farm bill for waterfowl? Well, I think there's a number of them, right? Um, the, I think our highest priority going into the farm bill is something that 
frankly, probably not enough duck hunters are aware of or know about. It's called Swamp Buster, and it's a provision that started in the 1985 Farm Bill that said, you know, farmers can't drain their wetlands um, unless they're unless they're willing to give up their federal farm benefits. And that, that's been the law of the land going back to the 1985 Farm Bill. But, you know, frankly, it's under attack pretty regularly. And so making sure that we came out of this Farm Bill with a robust swamp buster was really important. Um, obviously, the Conservation Reserve Program is a really important program uh, up in this part of the world for breeding ducks. You know, you go back into the late 90s and early 2000s when we had lots of CRP. CRP was modeled to produce about 2.2 million additional ducks every year in the fall flight. Um, so that, that's a hugely important program. Uh, CRP went up from 24 million acres in the last farm bill to 27 million acres. So that was a really good, really good outcome. One of the things we spent a lot of time on um, working with our conservation colleagues and in, in folks in agriculture is coming up with a new tool to protect small prairie wetlands and something Delta started working on in 2013 to find a new tool to pay farmers for those small temporary and seasonal wetlands that frankly are the most important wetlands to breeding ducks but are the easiest to drain and, and are the ones that are most frequently drained and we came up with the new voluntary incentive-based tool uh, under the Environmental Quality Incentives Program that will pay farmers for those small, really important duck-producing wetlands. And we're in the midst of getting that implemented right now. So those are sort of three major ones that, you know, we uh, there was an increase in the uh, NRCS easement program, which is important in many parts of the country to restore wetlands. Uh, VPA HIP, which uh, NRCS uses to provide block grants to states for private land walk-in programs. Those are some of the big outcomes of the 2018 Farm Bill with real benefits for ducks and duck hunters. Well, that is great. I'll tell you, I think we could probably, I imagine, do an entire show on the Farm Bill. I, I wish there was an easier way, and maybe there is, and I just haven't researched it, just to kind of get your hands on the ins and out of the information of what's going on with these bills and the specifics and whether they're positive or negatives. I know that it's really fascinating to sit down and, and listen um, to you talk about that stuff. Um, when we decided to have you on a second time, the reason that we were going to have you on is we were talking, you know, this has been a very unusual off season with the amount of water. I mean, it was just three or four years ago we were in drought. And now a lot of the um, central flyway is just completely flooded. Then there was apparently fires up in Canada. And so it's kind of hard to get a bead on what's the habitat like in, you know, the prairie pothole region. And what can we expect as far as waterfowl um, this coming hunting season? So I think that's the main reason we had you to come on just to inform us about the habitat and what's been going on in the off season with all the weather and, and how things are looking. Yeah, well, there's no doubt it's been a, a crazy off season. It's been crazy lots of places. Like uh, I've got dear friends that farm and are, farm and are big duck hunters in Arkansas. And when I spoke to him two weeks ago, he said there hadn't been a week gone by 
since mid-September where they didn't have a measurable rain event. And, you know, what the consequence that that's had for lots of people in, you know, Arkansas, Louisiana, Mississippi, Missouri, mm -hmm. Illinois, Indiana, Iowa, Nebraska, Minnesota, South Dakota, is that we've got a situation where there was so bloody much water and, and flooding in, in lots of places that, you know, folks didn't have a chance to get their crop in the ground. And, you know, when you sort of key in on the prairie pothole region, it's pretty interesting. You know, obviously, Iowa's really wet. Uh, Minnesota's very wet. South Dakota, from reports from people I really trust that have good perspective and aren't you know, don't spend a lot of time blowing sunshine up your skirt or saying it's the best that's looked in over 20 years. And boy, there's been some really good years in South Dakota over the last 20 years. And then, you know, you've got North Dakota, which has, you know, um, some some areas that are absolutely fantastic and some that aren't that great. And then you move across the border into Prairie Canada and it's pretty bloody dry. I mean, I was up there in early May snow goose hunting and uh, we didn't choose to drive in the fields just because you know a guy I found myself I convinced myself two years ago that I could drive drive in a field and found myself up to my axles and in muck so I was a little more cautious this year but it was really dry up there and it was really dry in May and things frankly haven't improved very much so You've got a situation where, you know, you've got the U.S. prairies, I think, in good condition. Montana's in good shape. And you've got Prairie Canada that's pretty bloody dry. Um, and, and that's not uncommon. It's pretty rare when the prairies are wet from east to west and north to south. Um, but, you know, the good news is I expect there to be really good duck production out of parts of North Dakota, South Dakota, Montana, uh, in the western Dakotas. And, and, you know, frankly, not, I don't hold out huge hope for great production coming out of Prairie Canada. Now, when, when you have an area like Canada um, that is dry, how does that affect the overall numbers? Do those birds just either stop short or go to other areas that are better, or do they try to nest there and then the success rate drops? Yeah, well, the, you know, I think depends on, it depends a bit on the species. Um, you know, you take a species like pintail. Pintail are absolutely famous for wandering around looking for the best water conditions. And, um, you know, pintail have a really strong preference for small temporary and seasonal wetlands. So they they put on a lot of miles looking for it. And so with the species like pintail, if there's water around, they tend to find it. Same would be the case with blue-winged teal uh, same would be the case with redheads. Now, on the opposite end of that spectrum, you've got a species like canvasback, which, frankly, are incredibly phylopatric, which means uh, adult females are going to go back to where they've nested previously, and juvenile females will go back uh, to where they were born. And, and canvasbacks are one of those species that, when it's dry in the core of their breeding range, we just know production is not going to be particularly good. Um, you know, I think in some instances, adult females won't nest. So, you know, I, I was talking to a uh, journalist today and I told him a duck isn't a duck isn't a duck. And that's certainly the case in terms of how ducks distribute based on these water conditions. If, 
you know, again, we're probably about a month away from seeing the estimates from the Fish and Wildlife Service, but my expectation would be, you know, species like blue-winged teal and redheads and pintails will see big jumps in probably mallards. Uh, we'll see big jumps in places like South Dakota. We could, you know, it could be to the point where the bulk of those populations is in places, the good areas of North Dakota, wet areas of North Dakota and South Dakota. Um, and, you know, we'll have to see what happens with, you know, species that have a little different strategy like canvasbacks. That sounds like uh, overall definitely uh, some good news. Well, I think it's it's certainly good news in comparison to last year. I mean, guys, last year was pretty bloody dry. Um, you know, it wasn't 1992 dry, but it was certainly drier than we've been accustomed to. Um, and, you know, at least this year, there are bright spots on the horizon where last year, frankly, there just weren't many bright spots. Yeah, and it's funny, you know, we, we get wrapped up into these numbers and everything, and when you're an individual hunter, they may or may not equal good or bad seasons for you personally. You know, on the whole, they matter. But I know, like for me, um, last year, the numbers were down. It was my best season ever. A lot of it locally is local weather and local conditions and whether they're going to fly over you or not. I know that um, a lot of people like here in Kansas are just already predicting doom and gloom. And, oh, it's, you know, they're calling the season off, basically, and uh, just because of all the water. And I'm like, you know, you just never know. I mean, we want, obviously, we want as many ducks as possible. But if the numbers are a little low, you stay, mill stay, still may have a good season. If the numbers are, you know, really booming, you personally may still not have a good season. So, although it's really, we want as many ducks as possible. I think sometimes hunters start predicting too much on how they're going to do based on the numbers. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, what we've, you know, after coming off a kind of crummy duck season in lots of places last year, we've spent a lot of time looking at the data. One thing's pretty clear, um, especially in the south, when we have a bumper crop, a young, when May pond counts are high, when May pond counts are the indicator that the Fish and Wildlife Service uses to annually assess wetland conditions in the prairies. When pond counts are high and we attract ducks to the most productive landscapes in the prairies, we can forecast gen in, a, in a general way, but it, it really is, frankly, the relationship is much stronger than I would have even guessed. We have good production and hunters shoot lots of ducks. And the reason for that is, is duck hunters do not hunt the breeding population. So, you know, in August, we're all going to look and we're going to say there's 9.8 million mallards and there's 3.2 million pintails and there's 6.2 million blue-winged teal and there's, holy cow, we had a bumper year with spoonies and there's 4.2 million. But the reality is that isn't what duck hunters actually hunt. Duck hunters actually hunt the fall flight, which is the number of adults plus the number of young they make. And, and when you start looking at having really good years, and we know this from harvest surveys, you know, when, when production is really good, you're going to have two or more juveniles per adult in the fall flight. So not only does that mean that, you know, if you've got a breeding population of 
10 million mallards, to use nice round numbers, and you have a 2.2 age ratio, which means you made a lot of baby mallards that spring, your fall population is 22 million. Um, and not only do you have a lot number, a lot bigger sort of absolute number of ducks, despite the fact that we all fancy ourselves as the world's greatest duck callers <laughs> and guys that set up the best decoy spreads and stay hid and deploy all the greatest gadgets, the reality is hunters are much more effective at killing young dumb ducks than they are old smart ducks. And so just by that in, it, in, it, in, it, in and of itself, means the years that we have bumper crops of production are the years we tend to have good harvest years. Yeah, I think uh, one thing me and Elliot were talking about um, before the podcast is I'm heading out there to Kansas. And uh, so hopefully from what you're saying is we're going to have a good pintail year and I can go down to Kansas and shoot my first pintail. <laughs> you should be able to. And the, the only thing about those pintail in Kansas is are you going to have those moist soil areas dried out to the point where it's going to be something for them to eat? Yeah. With places like I don't think we Bottoms. will. I don't think we will. I, I, it's, it's looking pretty bad here in Kansas. Um, I mean, be, there's so much water coming down the Missouri River that they're just not letting anyone drain anything, really. And right. That's the, and so if we could just drain some stuff, and I know my holes around here – um, they're sitting in 16 feet of water. And my biggest concern is not necessarily this year. My biggest concern is what kind of sediment that's going to leave and how that's going to ch- affect the to- overall depth of these holes or where they'll dry up a lot more frequently just because of the sediment. sediment. That's, yep. Yeah. I'm really scared about that. Um, but the moist soil certainly for this year is looking terrible, but I just don't want to lose my holes indefinitely. <laughs> to sediment. Right. right. Well, the good news is those those systems have been doing that stuff for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. My guess is they've managed, they regulate it. <laughs> I hope I hope so. It's you know some of these pools we hunt though are on these uh, up ends of the reservoirs that are man made. Yeah. So you know, it's a little bit more variable as far as um, how some of these off pools are going to gonna hold up i i I hope you're i'm gonna trust you're right on that because i got a couple (laughs) holes i'm worried about so i'm gonna say john said it's gonna be okay so i'm gonna trust you (laughs) well i trust god more than the corps of engineers but uh i'll leave it at that (laughs) so you think the 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 pintail population is is looking good um i've i've got a, a question about about pintails um, I did a little bit of research a few years ago for a video I did on the pintail numbers and what the problem was um, with it. And, and let me tell you kind of my perception and you tell me where I'm wrong or or where I'm at with it. So my understanding is that pintails um, a lot of times are um, one of the factors is that where they try to breed isn't the best cover. And sometimes they will nest in crop fields and and their selection process to the amount of cover that they have is a big problem. And that's one of the main factors as to what their population is. Um, Is that true? And also, are there other factors that are more significant than that with their population status? Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, pintails have another number of things going for them. And it's, 
you know, it's kind of a running debate between myself and our president, Frank, Frank, Dr. Frank Rohr, who's president chief scientist. So you can imagine who wins the debate. But, um, you know, you got a lot of things going against pintail. Number one is pintail favor those small temporary and seasonal wetlands, right? We talked about that earlier. And, and guess what kind of wetlands we're losing, especially at a, at a really fast rate in Prairie Canada in the core of the pintail range small temporary and seasonal wetlands. So, you know, and, and so, you know, we've lost that, those small wetlands that really drive pintail productivity. Uh, but you're, the, this, the thing you're mentioning is this sort of ecological trap hypothesis and uh, the sort of definitive work that's been done on that was done by a Delta student, Dr., now Dr. Ken Richkiss, uh, who now is head of the Migratory Bird Program for the Fish and Wildlife Service and a good friend of mine. And, and what he found was, it was very interesting, is, yeah, when, you know, one of the big sort of landscape scale changes in Prairie Canada, but also in the United States is, in prairies of the United States is, this move to no-till agriculture. And no-till agriculture is a really good thing. It reduces soil erosion from both wind and water, uh, helps build soil structure. It's better for soil health and fall tillage. Uh, but from a pintail's perspective, again, pintail were really a western prairie bird, and the core of their historic range was in the short grass prairie, a place like southwestern Saskatchewan and southern Alberta. And so when pintails come back to that landscape, that stubble from last year's small grain crop looks a heck of a lot like short grass prairie and so they nest in it and, and interestingly you know if you, Ken was looking at both mallards and pintails during his study to evaluate you know who was making better or worse decisions and, and mallards almost will never nest in that stuff and pintails interestingly will, will actually select that will select that cover and not show a preference for any other cover type so what I mean by that is if 90% of the landscape's in stubble and 10% of it's in pasture, with mallards, you're going to find all the nests in pasture. Same with gadwall, probably same with blue-winged teal. But with pintail, you're going to have 90% of the nests up in that stubble. So, so with the, when Ken was doing this work, everybody assumed that those nests were going to get clipped by seeding, right? Because that land is cropland. There's a family farmer out there on that landscape who's making a living farming it. And so the pintails would get whacked by the cedar in the spring, the pintail nests. Well, guess what happens, guys? We found that those nests frequently get depredated before the cedar even has a chance to get through it. So the raccoons, skunks, and foxes are eating those nests out in those habitats before the cedar gets them. And one other, one other problem with pintail is, pintail are the earliest nesting, prairie nesting duck. So the problem with being, there's sort of trade-offs with that. The good news is if you're a duck and you nest early and you hatch, your ducklings have a very high probability of surviving the winter. If you're a late nesting duck, your ducklings have a far poorer 
chance of making it to the next breeding season. That's been sort of documented in the literature. So pintails, because they, because they focus on that shallow, small wetlands, that resource is most frequently available right after ice out. So they get up here and get to work and start nesting. The problem with that is, is, is the prairies are waking up and the pintails are nesting, there's not an incredible amount of alternate prey around and um, there isn't a lot of cover. So even the, even the pintails that are smart enough to get out of the stubble, there isn't a lot of cover for them. It's been beaten down by the winter. There's no fresh green growth. And so predation nests on those early nests are well documented to have far lower survival. So when you summarize it, you know, the most important wetlands to pintails are, are, have been lost at an alarming rate. They predominantly nest in stubble. The ones that don't get eaten by predators get whacked by air seeders. <laughs> and they have generally lower nest success because of their propensity for nesting early. So that sums up, um, that sort of sums up the pintail problem. And you're, you're pretty straight on with that ecological trap hypothesis. Is there any reason to be optimistic um, that their populations will grow over the next 10 to 20 years or, or is it that they'll decline, continue to decline or stabilize? What's the thinking on that? You know, I mean, you'll see pintail populations come up, you know, especially when you're kind of wall to wall wet from Alberta through the Dakotas. And, and, you know, I would expect pintail populations to be up this year, probably not enough that it will be sort of head snapping, but any improvement with pintails is pretty welcome news about right now. The thing it's going to take to really get pintails to, you know, get back to where they're to, you know, where we'd like them to be is we got to stop the loss of small wetlands first and foremost, because that's the vital element in carrying capacity. And when you lose that, it's almost impossible to get it back. Um, you know, more CRP acres in the, in the U.S. prairies would certainly be welcome news. Pintails will find their way into that stuff and have high nest success and start building populations over time. I mean, you know, here in the last 10 years, there was a year where there were actually more breeding pintails in the U.S. prairies than there was in the Canadian prairies, which had you said that 20 years ago, you would have been laughed out of the room. But it's frankly because our small wetlands are in better shape than they are in Canada. And we had CRP producing a number of docks for many, many years. So I think it's gonna take, you know, deal with small wetlands, uh, more CRP in the U.S. Prairie Pottle region and a CRP type program in Prairie Canada to, you know, to put some more perennial cover on that landscape um, and get, get pintails nesting in safer habitats. Hmm. So it does sound like there's some good news mixed in there, but a lot of um, kind of concerning things. But I guess so the general outlook on them, um, we're definitely not looking at them going kind of in a negative direction. It's either stable or increasing kind of with, with whatever um, kind of wetlands we have to work with. Um, in the springs? Well, I mean, I, I could tell you there's a scenario where we can get much lower on pintail numbers than we are now. Um, we keep losing wetlands and go into a prolonged drought. 
Pintail populations can get a heck of a lot lower than they are right now. I mean, I, I, the, the interesting thing about pintails, and, and it's sort of interesting from a harvest management perspective, is, you know, I just don't think this landscape is capable of supporting more than about four and a half, five million pintails. If you look last 20, 25 years, you know, that sort of is the peak. I think we peaked out at about 4.4 million pintails here a few years back. Um, you know, I think the, the, the top end of their population range, you know, in 1956, believe it or not, there were more pintails in the breeding population than there were mallards. Wow. There's like 10.7 million pintails in the breeding population. And, and we had some really high populations in the 70s too. We're probably never going to get back to those levels, but I think, you know, with the right you know, the right policy, the right programs, and the right precipitation, uh, you can get back to probably, you know, 4.4. But boy, that's, guys, that represents an incredible amount of work. I mean, there's there's no move for a Canadian CRP program right now. And, and the wetland loss rate in Prairie Canada is today as it was in 1971. So it isn't like that Golly gee whiz, it'll just happen. There's going to be a lot of work to do things like stabilize pintail populations. And what was the population at last year? Like 2.2 million in that range? Uh, you're going you're gonna to make me do math. Um, <laughs> let me, let me, I can tell you here in a second, guys. Just give me a minute. Pintail breeding estimate for last year was uh, status report. Status report. Pintail breeding population last year was these are big reports guys sorry yeah that's all right that's all right I know we saw way fewer pintails last year but I don't think what we see here in Kansas isn't always based on the populations yeah more local habitat yeah. and weather the year before we saw I mean I've never seen so many pintails Pintail population last year was at, uh, this is 2017, where's my two, here we go. Anyways, I was looking at the wrong report, guys. I'm slow and getting slower. <laughs> yeah, I think, uh, speaking of local habitat, Indiana is not one for a lot of pintails, so <laughs> we see very few. Uh, the only time that I see them if, is if I go in Indiana south southwest um indiana which is a long skinny state you wouldn't think it would make that big of a difference but uh i've never seen them well i've never seen them in season in uh northern indiana yes okay uh, southwest okay guys here was the number for last year 2.365 million um and you know big declines in southern saskatchewan southern manitoba and pretty big decline in the eastern dakotas uh 18 decline from the previous year 40 percent below the long-term average uh the long-term average for pintail partially buoyed by those years in the 50s and 70s is 3.9 million it's funny how it works here in kansas with the pintail limits because they'll base the following season limits on the previous year's hatch. So Correct. like we had, um, 
last year, I believe it was, yeah, it was two pintails last year. Despite the fact we had crummy breeding conditions. Yes, yes. And then, you know, everyone we talk to says, well, you know, hunter harvest rates don't really make a difference anyway. You know, so it's just kind of like, it's got to be a better system. <laughs> well, what it, 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 for many, many, many years, we did it based on, you know, we did it based on the current year's breeding population. So that was, you know, we counted the ducks in May and June, they cranked the models, and they set the regulations in August uh, for consideration of flyaways and then open teal seasons and then big duck seasons. The problem is, according to the Fish and Wildlife Service, is, you know, there's a fairly long process to crank that regulatory wheel every year. And so, you know, here, oh, was it three years now? Three years ago, we started setting uh, harvest or hunting seasons based on the previous year's breeding population. But you're right with it, you know, it may not, you know, it's, it may not matter in terms of the general framework of the duck season, but, you know, you take a duck like pintails, um, you know, Two years ago, we had a one bird bag limit, but actually pintail populations and production was probably okay. Last year, and we had a one bird bag limit. Last year, we knew production for pintails, population was down, production was probably pretty crummy, and we had a two bird limit. And we may find ourselves this year where we see a nice rebound in pintail populations and we're back down to one. So it's it's kind of counterintuitive to hunters, but you know, the what most folks don't understand is that duck seasons are closed until they're opened. Now that's obvious to everybody, but what I mean by that is literally it takes an act, act, act action and activity by the Secretary of the Interior to open the duck season every year. Hmm. And so, and when, when the U.S. government does something along the magnitude of opening up a duck season, or any other substantial government action, um, that requires going through a public comment period. Now, the public comment period for general duck regulations doesn't probably, you know, I'm not sending in a letter, you're not sending in a letter, maybe Humane Society of the United States is sending in a letter, but, but by federal law, they have to go through that process to allow the public to comment on a substantive regulation change. And so that process to collect the data, to have the secretary, to have the preliminary rule written, to have the public comment on it, and the Secretary of Interior to make it a final rule, takes a long time. And, and that's why we set seasons the way we do, even though it's a bit counterintuitive, especially on something like pintails. And with the comment period, does that happen at a federal level or is that um, a local level comment? Set federal comment? level. So that's, yeah, it's a comment through the Department of Interior. You know, if you could spend all sorts of time going on the Department of Interior website, looking at all the things they're taking public comment on as part of the rulemaking process. And it's, it's, and it's not just the Department of Interior. USDA has to do the same thing. Every federal agency has to solicit public comment before a regulation is made final. So I know that there's, they, they do a lot of public comment here in the state of Kansas on, on the local level, and they'll have four or five different 
um, dates where they have sessions just to go over all sorts of things with um, Department of Wildlife and Parks. And, um, man, those sessions, they, they broadcast them online now. They can get really interesting. Um, it can get pretty fired up. Well, well you get guys that are you got guys that are fired up about you know when my you know do we have three zones or four mm -hmm. uh do we when do we open the season when do we split it and and you know duck hunters have never been the most harmonious bunch right and you know you you deal with duck hunters and you know what works for me and the way i like to shoot ducks may be entirely contrary to what another guy wants and We've watched this play out in Iowa for years where there's this conflict between the guys that hunt natural marshes and the guys that like to lay in cornfields in the snow and shoot late season mallards. And there's that there's that inherent conflict between not not necessarily aimed at the agency um, that's collecting the feedback, but just hunter on hunter is, well, I like to hunt this way and you like to hunt that way, which means we're going to get in a screaming match at a public hearing. So one of us gets our way that you hit the nail on the head. That's exactly what it is here in Kansas. We've got four different zones, Southeast Kansas. Those, most of those guys want the season as late as possible, but in that zone, you've got these shallow water marshes that a lot of times freeze by, you know, early to mid December. Right. And you know, a lot more of the casual hunters, they want these early dates before it freezes. And so, I mean, it gets really, really heated. Then you have certain commissioners that sit on the board that are vying for, you know, one idea or the other. And I'll tell you what makes for really entertaining viewing. I, I mean, every single one I make sure to watch online because it's pretty entertaining. Well, you will never find a more self-interested bunch than duck hunters. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, it blows my mind because I'm going off topic a little bit, but this I find this interesting to me at least is like in Kansas, we've got four zones if you're willing to travel, if I travel two hours in any direction, I can literally hunt from the time teal season opens until the last day of January with only like one week off. And if you right. look at the days, that's over a hundred days, right? I mean, that right. is an amazing waterfowl season. And you'll get these guys that are just complaining. We just, I just want one zone, one zone for all the state of Kansas. And I'm like, so you want to go from like 120 days to 70? That's your right. solution? That's right. not a very good solution to me. Right. No, and that's, I mean, that's a tough job. I mean, state duck biologists all over the country have to balance that public input. And, you know, we've been engaged in those issues. Not, we've never been engaged to picking, picking, drawing lines on maps and picking days on calendars, because I don't think anybody wants us in that game. And I, I don't think it's really fair to anybody for us to be in that game. But, you know, we've always asked the departments, and, you know, I remember one in New Jersey where our volunteers and members in New Jersey wanted, wanted some real survey work done to sort of inform, you know, not just by the loudest voice, but, but sort of by the most democratic means possible, how to evaluate, you know, the, their season structure. And that was a very good outcome. And hunters felt like they were heard, I mean, you know, it's not always perfect depending on the eye of the beholder, but I think it's a, it's a reasonable way to make sure that, that the, the greatest number of hunters have the greatest amount, you know, have an impact on the process rather than a few guys that are just willing to shout down 
everybody in the room, which happens lots and lots. Yeah, it certainly does. So we, we want to um, definitely get to the North Dakota numbers. We know we talked about that a little before we, we went live. But um, before we move on to that, um, I want to make sure we, we have some kind of closure on the Pintel discussion. Um, so, you know, with the numbers and, and the population being down, um, what can just average Joes like us do about it? I mean, is it just um, doing as much as supporting Delta and along those lines or what would you suggest to to um the waterfowl community on that well i mean the the pintail problem is a prairie problem right so in most instances you know if you're a duck hunter in kansas or indiana or texas or arkansas or louisiana or california frankly that problem is going to be you know solved in north dakota south dakota montana man saskatchewan and alberta frankly that's that's where the problem is. And I mean, I think, you know, I think it, staying engaged with things like the farm bill, I mean, the, the farm bill and, you know, if we can get it sort of Canadian equivalent, that'll mean more to pintails than almost anything else that can be done. Um, you know, that's, you know, obviously, you know, a good thing that every duck hunter can do is buy two federal duck stamps because those, those, proceeds from those federal duck stamps, 50% of that money is now coming straight to the prairie pothole region. Most of that is being used to, uh, for fish and wildlife service, wetland and grassland easements. That's the simplest thing. If every duck hunter went out and bought two federal duck stamps, that would double, eh, maybe not quite double, but probably close to double the amount of money the Fish and Wildlife Service has to protect the most important pintail in breeding duck habitat in places like North South Dakota and Montana. Cool. Well, not to toot my own horn, but I just got four of them this week. Good for you. <laughs> you know, that's you something. Me to it. Jordan, that's something that we could start talking about on a weekly basis is urging people just to buy. I've never bought, I've never even thought about buying more than one stamp. It's never even crossed my mind until Jordan posted that picture. Um, so that's something we could certainly start talking about and urging people to do. Well, if you think about it, guys, I mean, the beautiful thing about the Fish and Wildlife Service, about the duck stamp, is 98% of that money goes right back into programs because the Fish and Wildlife Service has the infrastructure to deliver it. And so, you know, if a guy buys two federal duck stamps, that's $25, 98 cents of 20, 98% of $25, that's going to go right back to buy it. Fish and Wildlife Service easement for either wetlands or grasslands. It's, I mean, it, it's, in, and I'll tell you the magnitude of it, guys. You know, that program got started in the late 50s. Fish and Wildlife Service got going on it in earnest in the 60s. That program has protected over one third of the vulnerable wetland habitat in the U.S. prairie pothole region. That's phenomenal. It's, it's an incredible. There, I will, I will dare say, and, and anybody who wants to debate me, I'll do it live and we can do it on pay-per-view. <laughs> um, there is not a greater conservation legacy anywhere on the planet for any species than what duck hunters have done via the federal duck stamp in preserving small prairie wetlands. It's awesome. Yeah, it's cool. All right. The moment we've been waiting for. Uh, do you want to go ahead and give us a summary of the Dakota 
uh, fish and wildlife numbers? Yeah, it's guys. It's really interesting. So top line, um, the their water index, which is sort of their pair count or their pond count, uh, increased by forty five percent from the previous year. So it went from 442,000 to 644,000. Now, when you look at that, it's a big jump from, from year to year because last year was pretty bloody dry, but it was just a little bit, it was really right in line with the long-term average. But here's the really interesting thing about it is, and I happen to know Mike Szymanski real well, he's a friend of mine who does the survey and does the analysis is if you look at the, just the raw numbers, it shows that conditions are average. But the interesting thing about this year is there are very few places in North Dakota that were actually average. There were lots of places that were crazy wet and some places that were crazy dry. So you kind of have this patchwork um, of conditions from being really great to you know really not that good at all. Um, now the good news was, you know, the water increase was up 45% from last year. The duck count was also up 20%. Now the duck numbers continue to be way above the long-term average just because we've been wet for so bloody long. We've just got a lot of birds in the system. And, you know, you asked earlier, um, you know, what do ducks do when it's dry? Well. You know, we talked about ducks jamming into the best available habitat. I have to imagine that, you know, North Dakota and South Dakota will be big beneficiaries of that. I just, I have to imagine with the dry conditions in Prairie Canada that we're going to see situations where ducks are jamming into areas that have, you know, the highest, uh, the highest wetland density in good wetland conditions. Awesome. Well, Kansas is uh, just a few states south, so. <laughs> That's right. And my guess is uh, what happens in North Dakota and South Dakota means a heck of a lot to Kansas. Yes, it does. Yes, it does. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not so much for Indiana, but. Yeah. But... Oh, I think you'd be surprised. Um, a lot of these ducks from the Dakotas end up over that way, too. Indiana certainly gets a lot of birds from the lake states, but. Uh, I think you'd be surprised how many ducks are coming out of North and South Dakota end up in Indiana. Well, I'm glad to hear it. <laughs> Push some of those pintails over for Jordan. He is on a lifelong quest to shoot his first pintail. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully this year it'll happen. We got yeah. him coming down a couple times, once in early November. That early November is a, a, a decent time. A little bit late for Kansas pintails, but still a, a decent time. Yep. Yep, we tend to push most of them out of here by about the first week of November out of North Dakota and the Canadian prairies when most of the pintails vomit us from this part of the world. It's funny, John, here I'm on the eastern side of the state where it's more like Missouri than actual Kansas, lots of timber and, and things like that. And we do not see, even in October, very many pintails. I think I've only shot one or two in this area. But the central part of the state, boy, they just... They come through there, that little hourglass, like you wouldn't believe in October. Yep, i got to imagine some of that stuff looks like really pintail-y type habitat. Oh, it's, it's phenomenal. It's great to see them. Awesome. Um, did, did we want to run the uh, lightning round with John? I can't remember if we did that the last time. I don't remember. I, 
I imagine we probably did it last time, I, but I don't I, remember. I think we did, guys. All right. Well, let's go ahead. We'll, we'll go ahead. We'll do the the summarized version of it. Um, I think we can snap through that. Quick questions with quick answers, and let's go ahead and run through it. So, uh, what kind of gun do you shoot? Well, I'm a long. How how lightning does this have to be? <laughs> Pretty lightning. <laughs> nah, say we'll what you want to say. It. Say what you want. Okay. Say. Well, I I've been a guy that for since 1993 my my dad shot browning a5 lights my entire life um so that was the gun i grew up around i shot a browning a5 every day from 1993 <laughs> until last fall when my my sort of my long time browning a5 finally just wore out and and i decided that i should probably go to something else and so I bought a gun that not many people even know is made um, because I'm a skinny little guy. Um, recoil is not my friend. Um, I bought a Beretta A400 Lite, which is the A400 with uh, chambered for a three inch round. So that's what I'm shooting. Um, and man, I, it's amazing. It turns out that there's been some new technology in firearms since John M. Browning came up with the A5, which I probably should have known about 30 years ago. But that I'm loving shooting that gun. Awesome. Well, well to kind of add on that, um, you know, talking about the Browning A5, you just kind of instantly became one of my heroes. Um, <laughs> My favorite gun for me to hunt with is uh, a Browning A5 that my grandpa passed on to me. Um, not a light, it's a Magnum, so it, it chambers up to the 3 inch and the 20 gauge. Uh, but it's a sweet gun, and I have a new A5, and I much prefer going with the old style. And I, I hunt with that and have great success with it all the time. All right, so what kind of ammo do you shoot? Well, there's something that's a real shotgun, right? When you close that shotgun, you're closing a real shotgun. You hear metal slam against metal, and uh, no, and I've still got I've still got a few A5s in the safe, and I'll pull them up from time to time. But I thought it was time to join the 21st century. Yep, yep. <laughs> I won't hold it against you too much. So uh, <laughs> I think I cut out there a little bit, but um, what kind of ammo do you shoot? Uh, almost exclusively uh, Federal Blue Box, um, three inch, number threes if I can find them, uh, but primarily number twos. And Federal you, uh, has been a great partner at Delta for a long time. I find they perform really well day in, day out for me, and that's what I shoot. And do you prefer ducks or geese? Ducks, by far. Um, I'm a duck hunter. I, you know, I enjoy uh, snow goose hunting a great deal, but primarily in the spring when I can't shoot anything else. I'm a terrible turkey hunter, so it's better for me to be out chasing snow geese than turkeys. Um, I did actually go on a Canada goose hunt uh, last November with some friends from the Retriever Club, and I will say that's the first time I've been. I, I've been down on honkers for so long that I couldn't even remember that I enjoyed shooting them. But we had a really nice shoot on big honkers uh, out of a pit uh, just west of the Missouri River last year. And I really enjoyed it. I didn't enjoy cleaning them, and I certainly <laughs> didn't enjoy uh, 
cut the, cutting the wings and the tail feathers to send in for the harvest survey. But uh, I sure I sure enjoyed that hunt a bunch last year. Awesome. And uh, what size uh, or what what type of choke do you run? I run as of right now. I'm just running factory improved cylinder on all my hunts. I've I I have not made again. I'm I'm a little slow on the uptake. I haven't got into the whole custom choke thing. Uh, I'm probably going to send. I think I missed my window for this year. I'm probably going to send my gun down to Rob Roberts to have uh, backboard and dipped and probably have them do custom chokes for it. But um, because my planning is poor and my execution is worse, um, I'm going to run factory chokes again this year. Awesome. Approved cylinders uh even uh, even wider spread than I think Elliot runs, so. <laughs> I'm just a modified boy. There you go. We did shoot improved on teal season um, two years ago and loved it but we were shooting fours and we switched this last year to sixes and I kept in the modified and shot like 70%. So I think I found my sweet spot. Well, guys, here's the deal. I've been, you know, I'm not that old. I'm 48, but you know, I've had the opportunity to shoot a heck of a lot of ducks and I've gotten to the point where I want to shoot them the way I want to shoot them. And the way I want to shoot them most often is at 25 yards, you know, a guy with a good bean bag mm-hmm. and a good arm could kill all the ducks on killing the shotgun. <laughs> so I mean, it's it's become way more about. And I'm pretty picky about the way I shoot ducks these days. So I'm probably I am certainly not the guy to talk to about being a great wing shot performance in ballistics. Because frankly, at 25 yards, uh, if I can't shoot them, it's not the firearm's fault. It's 100% operator error. Yeah, that's good to hear, though. We love hearing people say they want to get them in close. There's way too much 55 to 60-yard shots taking place these days. Yeah, I hear you. All right. Well, I think that's a good summary of the the lightning round. We'll run with that for tonight. Um, But anything else you want to add on, Elliot? I would like to ask spinner or no spinner. Oh, you're going to get me. This is, are we doing a presidential debate? Um, I mean, you're going to get 50% of the people to love me and 50% of the people to hate me. I'm going to, I'm going to plead the fifth. Um, no, I use them. I use them. Um, we talked about it. It talked about it this week. And, you know, there's certainly lots of hunts that, you know, I could probably do without, but I, as I told one of my colleagues this week, I said, I kind of feel with, like spinners, like I felt about beer when I was in college. Probably could have had fun without it, but I'm not willing to take the chance. <laughs> <laughs> and so, um, and you know, we do a fair bit, of not, I'd prefer to shoot ducks over the water, if it, but you know, we find ourselves in situations where um, we do a fair bit of field hunting, especially late in the season, and, and there's no doubt that spinners have played a pretty big role in that whole deal. Awesome. All right, well, I think that's about going to wrap it up for tonight. Um, again, real quick before we, we kind of head off, um, let people know the best way they can get involved with Delta and help um, with Delta and their mission for waterfowl. Yeah, I think, again, like we mentioned earlier, I think get on our website at deltawaterfall.org, uh, follow us on our Facebook page, and go to that 
go to that website, look for a chapter near you. Uh, it's absolutely amazing to me the good work our chapters are doing in their communities, uh, working on hunter recruitment, working on local projects, and you know I think that's a great way for hunters to get involved. That's that's probably the direction I'd send folks. Awesome, that sounds great. All right, fellas, thanks again for joining us on another podcast. We got some more great ones lined up coming at you. Real quick, don't forget. Check Elliot and I out on YouTube. We both got our YouTube channels pumping out content ready for YouTube or <laughs> ready for duck season, not YouTube season. Although it feels like that a little Basically bit. Basically the same thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, also, you can find us both on Instagram. Um, and make sure to hit that five star review if you're enjoying the content we have been putting out for you. I'm Jordan from Duck Gun Chronicles, Elliot from Freelance Duck Hunting, and John Devney of Delta Waterfowl, and we'll see you guys next time.